You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. This is the portion of the service that uh, we set aside each week for prayers of the people. And it's time where we can talk about things going on in our lives, in our community. So if there's something that you'd like to share that you'd like for us to pray about, come on forward, let us know your first name and what you'd like for us to pray about, and we'll do that together. Uh, j- just for, um, I think a lot of people here are affected by the Rachel Hill Evans family and that whole situation. Yeah, are you, how many of you guys are familiar with Rachel Held Evans and her work? Lots of you, okay. Yeah, Rachel Held Evans is, was, a, was an author and a, a blogger, and um, she was a influential person in conservative circle, or in, sorry, in progressive circles. She was particularly influential to me, And I know to so many of you in this community or to people who have come through the kind of journeys that have brought us to this place. Max and I were talking about this earlier. I knew I was going to lose it. <laughs> so she passed away yesterday. Um, she was 37. And uh, she left behind a a beautiful legacy of her work in advocacy for the marginalized and the oppressed in building bridges between liberals and conservatives as uh, ashley and i were reading about this yesterday i think it was the friendly atheist who in response had said that she burned all the right bridges she was very very tactful in the way that she presented her journey of faith. So she leaves behind a beautiful legacy, but she also leaves behind her husband and her three-year-old and almost one-year-old child. So it's always tragic. If you are familiar with her work, if you've been touched by her journey in any way, I know this has been a emotional time in the church. And as Max and I were talking this morning, People have come out from all over the place who have adored her work from unexpected places. Um, Not just people who have gone all the way through deconstruction, but people who have appreciated the way that she has worked and presented a kind of unifying approach to faith. So, yeah, this is a tragic time in the church, and loss always is, but I think it's more than appropriate that pray together. Would you join me? Gracious God, we don't always know what to do when we feel grief. We look for explanations that often aren't there to find. We look at how unfair the world is. We look at how people with prominent, strong, transformational voices are taken down and those with voices that promote oppression and violence 
continue to be present in our world, and we can't make sense of these things. God, we especially pray for Rachel's family in the middle of this deep tragedy. God, I'm thankful for the work that she leaves behind, for the voice and the way that she has influenced and transformed so many people's lives and faith, that she has truly left this world better off than when she came in. God, let us remember that kind of legacy. We strive to be a part of that kind of legacy in your church and in your world. So comfort those of us who mourn, especially her husband, Dan, and her children as they navigate these fresh and painful waters. Surround them with love. Those of us as we grieve, um, give us comfort as well. Give us places to remember and to talk about the influence and the work and the way that we want to embody the kingdom in ways that she did. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the things that I loved about Rachel Hod Evans was the way that she tried to make sense of God and the Bible in the midst of a changing world and her own changing faith. Um, if you're not familiar with her story, she grew up in the South in the midst of the conservative evangelical church. And like many of us here, she began asking questions about her faith. And as she did that, she began blogging about this journey that she was on. And she wrote about her faith, not as a theologian or as somebody who had arrived, but as somebody still in the midst of a journey. Not always knowing where that journey was going to end. So Rachel and her work were extremely influential in my journey. And it's probably true for a lot of you who are here as well. Rachel was one of the early voices in my life as I began to deconstruct my faith. That helped keep me grounded. She gave me a kind of sense of peace in the midst of my own deconstruction. And those of you who have been through deconstruction, those of you who are in journeys of deconstruction, it can be a traumatic place to be. Um, Rachel was one of those voices who entered it gracefully. She was somebody who asked difficult questions, but brought people together. There weren't stupid questions. There weren't stupid things that you could believe. There were only spaces to grow. She taught me to hold on to my faith when I was asking all kinds of questions about God and if God was even there listening at all. And the way Rachel approached God and the way that she was transparent and vulnerable about her own journey, it helped me to make an intangible God tangible at the time when I needed it most. And I think that's at the core of what this journey of faith is that we're doing. I think it's at the core of what this faith tradition has always been from the beginning. 
we have this yearning to make the intangible tangible in our midst. Like we look for ways to make sense out of the things that are bigger and beyond us. We ask these existential questions. And I think that's what the writers of the Bible were doing also. Sometimes we have this way of reading the scriptures as this kind of record of what happens, that this is just a history for us to read and understand the way that God did things in the world. That misses so much of the power of what our scriptures do. Our scriptures are this journey of people who are discovering who God is in their own context and in the midst of their own journeys and their own struggles and their own questions. And so the Bible doesn't act like a written record of events. It's a record of people trying to explain the unexplainable. People grasping for ways to make an intangible God tangible in our lives. And so this morning, I want to invite you to wander with me through the Bible. And as we do that, I want us to look at it the way that Rachel did in her work. Not asking questions of, did this happen? But asking questions of, how is God moving here in this space? How is God moving among these people? And it seems like a simple reframe but I think it gets at the heart of where the writers are coming from as they try to explain an infinite God with this limited, finite language that we have. So I want to start at the beginning. Our Bible opens, I think, beautifully to illustrate this with not one but two creation stories. And if there was ever a question about whether this was a historical record or not, the answer comes right in the beginning because Genesis 1 is a poem. And it's a beautiful, beautiful Hebrew poem. And it comes out of a context where the ancient world often understood the existence of everything around us as the result of battles between the gods that everything that we have is a cosmic accident because beings that couldn't care less about us are waging war and having their own conflicts. But for the Israelites, they looked at the world around them and they painted a different picture. And over a long time of oral tradition of telling these stories, this poem became one of the most important. And it's a poem that talks about a God in a different way, because this God, the God of the Hebrews, didn't create out of cosmic accident. God created intentionally. And it's at the core of how the Jewish people understand their identity, that we're not the result of something bad, that God created, and he said, this is good. And it's the framework, this poem, that sets the scope for all of our scriptures. Um, for me, it was a really helpful reminder early in my journey that if this important story of our origins can be a piece of art, that so much more of the Bible can be as well. And of course, if you're familiar with the biblical narrative, you know the core story of the Jewish people, the identity of um, the faith of Abraham, is the story of the Exodus. And in Exodus... 
God is present with his people. In a time of great turmoil and oppression, God shows up and God delivers his people. And it's the story that plays out again and again and again throughout their history. People are always trying to make God tangible, and they're writing stories about the ways that God is tangible in their midst. And so we have the history of how the Jewish people understood God and how that evolved, starting um, with the tabernacle. So after the law is given at Mount Sinai, the Jewish people set up the tabernacle because this God is not a God who's far away. This is a God who's present, tangible in our midst. And this God lives in a tent, which is weird. But the tent is more present than anything else that came before it and how people understood God interacting in the world. And then the people built the Ark of the Covenant, which was thought to be the literal dwelling place of God. And they carried God with them everywhere that they went. Their God never left them. Their God was always present. And then, as things developed further, they eventually built the temple. And the temple becomes the kind of cornerstone of the Jewish faith for the rest of its history. And inside the temple is the Holy of Holies, the place where the Ark of the Covenant rests and where God's presence dwells. And it's a reminder for the people that God is present here amongst us, with us. This intangible God that we can't understand and experience is physically present here. Why was this story so important? To tell this story of God being physically and tangibly present. Why does that matter so much? I think as I read through the rest of the scriptures, we don't always get these promises and affirmations that God is present. We also see a huge response over and over again of a crying out by the Jewish people. God, where are you? Because they don't feel God. Because God isn't present. And so we get these amazing stories that in wandering in the wilderness for 40 years after Exodus, as the Jewish people remember back on this time, like, yeah, there was this time when we were freed, but then we were alone in the desert. We wandered, but... God was present. And so they tell this story of these beautiful metaphors of a pillar of smoke and fire leading the people. We're always looking for ways to make an intangible God tangible and present for us. And the, the amazing thing, I think, is that God does that work too. God is working to make God's self tangible in our lives and in the world around us. And of course, in the Christian faith, things change dramatically. And some of those symbols get turned on their head. At one point, the temple of the curtain is torn. And it's a sign that the Holy Spirit is present in and through the world. But before we get to that point, we have this amazing thing, the crux of the Christian faith is that God doesn't just reside among us, 
but that God becomes like us. That God steps into the world. And in Jesus, we have this amazing picture of a God who becomes physically present in the world with us. I'm struck by how powerful this vision of God has been. How for 2,000 years this has changed and transformed the world. More for better than for worse. But we have a complicated past as the church, right? I love the way the Bible talks about Jesus and shows this story of a God who's in our midst because there's these few events that happen that really kind of show the pinnacle of how God is present. And there's a lot of ways that we can kind of look at how God is most present. But for us in this community, we look at how how Jesus interacts with the people around him. We look at the way Jesus cared for the marginalized and the oppressed. We talk about the embodiment of Christ in us, in the way that we act, in the way that we treat people, in the way that we strive for justice, in the way that we take up causes against oppression. And there's this beautiful story that I think kind of encapsulates how God becomes present with us in Christ. Matthew talks about it especially, but there's this moment called the transfiguration. And Jesus goes with his inner three disciples, and he walks up a mountain, and there on a mountain they have this amazing experience where Moses and Elijah show up and they appear out of nowhere. And all of a sudden Jesus is glowing and there's a light shown around him. And this moment known as the transfiguration, the disciples of course don't know what to do. And Peter, who's always like the first to speak, he says, great, let's put up three tents. And we can put these three tents up so that you and Moses and Elijah can stay here, these figures and these fathers of the faith. And this can be this like perfect dwelling place here on the mountain. But just like Moses had to go back down the mountain out of God's presence and bring the law to the people on Mount Sinai, so we see the same thing happening here in the Transfiguration. Jesus doesn't stay up on the mountain. In fact, immediately after Peter suggests that they stay, Jesus takes the disciples and they descend back down the mountain, just like Moses did centuries before. There's an interesting detail in this story because when Moses and Elijah show up, the heavens open and a voice from God says, this is my son whom I love. With him, I'm well pleased. Listen to him. God only speaks twice in the Gospel of Matthew. He speaks when Jesus is baptized, and he repeats those words again when the heavens open, and Jesus walks with his disciples down because God being present in the world happens in and through us. Jesus walks down the mountain with his disciples, and that's the moment where things change. We move from there into the end of the gospel with the crucifixion and the resurrection. And Jesus represents this kind of, this kind of intersection, this 
like cataclysmic event where the human and the divine come together fully and completely. And there's a few ways that this is really powerful. Some people point to the incarnation, to um, Jesus' birth, to God becoming human as the pivotal point where God and humanity are changed forever. And that's powerful. Some people point to the crucifixion, that God's death, the sacrifice that Jesus takes, forever transforms what happens for us, forever changes the way that the human and the divine interact in the world. And some people point to the resurrection, this culmination point, this conquering and overcoming of death. And those are all fantastic. I love those. But for me, the pivotal moment, the pivotal moment when humanity and the divine collide is in Gethsemane. Max read the scripture for us this morning out of Matthew. And Gethsemane is this place where God cries out to God and God isn't listening. Never for me is there a space where God is more connected to humanity than in our experience of crying out, in our experience of not knowing. Um, God's presence in our midst shows up ironically in the place where we don't feel God at all. In the presence of death. And we experience death in all kinds of ways. We're a small church, but this church has been touched by death a lot. A lot of stories in the last few years. But we experience all kinds of deaths. We experience the death of relationships, the death of marriages, the death of a career, maybe the death of a dream. Or maybe we experience the death of our faith or at least the death of our faith as it once was. It's in those very moments where we yearn, where we reach out for God, and when we feel like God isn't there, that we can connect with the long history of the people of Israel. People who cried out, God, where are you? People who watched in exile as their temple was destroyed said, God, where are you? and the loss that we experience in our own lives when we ask that question, God, where are you? We have a God who sat in the garden, whose closest friends couldn't even stay awake with him, who felt completely alone and abandoned and said, God, where are you? And things didn't turn out in that moment the way that Jesus was praying. And we don't have assurances that things are going to turn out the way that we want. 
But we do have in Christ the example of how we are not alone. We're called into a community of faith that we are not alone. That in our moments of grief, we come together. We can share with one another. I wanted to share with you as we wrap up our time together, um, the last blog post that Rachel shared. And it's very fitting. And it's beautiful and tragic. But the last thing that she posted herself on her blog was on Ash Wednesday this year, leading into the Lenten season. And so I think you can probably resonate a part of this community with what she talks about here, but she opens from, uh, with a passage from, from her book. And she says, there are recovery programs for people grieving the loss of a parent, sibling, or spouse. You can buy books about how to cope with the death of a beloved pet or work through the anguish of a miscarriage. We speak openly with one another about the bereavement that can accompany a layoff, a move, a diagnosis, or a dream deferred. No one really teaches you how to grieve the loss of your faith, or the loss of your faith as it once was. You're on your own for that. Then Rachel says, as, as the season of Lent commences, I'm aware this year of all who find themselves in a season of frustration, grief, and lament over the church or their place in it. The evangelical embrace of Trumpism. The abuse scandals in the Roman Catholic Church and the Southern Baptist Convention. The United Methodist Church's division over LGBTQ inclusion. Not a day goes by that someone doesn't reach out to me in person or online to tell me that they feel betrayed by their family or faith, by what has been done and by what has been left undone. She says, this path of lament is a well-worn one for me. It strikes me today that the liturgy of Ash Wednesday teaches something that nearly everyone can agree on whether you're a part of the church or not, whether you believe today or you doubt, whether you're a Christian or an atheist or an agnostic or a so-called nun whose faith experiences far transcend the limits of that label, you know this truth deep in your bones. Remember that you are dust and to dust you will return. Death is a part of life. My prayer for you this season is that you make time to celebrate that reality and to grieve the reality that you will know and you are not alone. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. Let's pray. Gracious God, a God who meets us in the places we are. God, I'm so glad that you're a God who meets us in our journey, who's not upset when we cry out, 
when we ask where you are and when we don't feel your presence. God, allow us to be people who embody the work that you were doing here in this place through Jesus. Allow us to be voices for the marginalized, for the oppressed. Allow us from our places of privilege where we have them to lift up voices of those whose voices need so desperately to be heard. Allow us to be makers of peace, bridge builders, in a time where things feel so divided. Thank you for the witness of your life here in Jesus. Thank you for the witness of the people who have faithfully served you. Allow us to enter into that tradition, God. Make us people and a community of hope and peace and grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Each episode of the Central Cast is followed by an interactive discussion. If you'd like to participate in recordings, or if you're interested in exploring progressive faith and theology for a postmodern context, check out centralavenuechurch.org. Here's this week's unedited discussion. First, I wanted to thank you for um, shining a light on the grief process. Um, I think oftentimes people try to mask it or just give some kind of hokey response or something, some cliche. So thank you for being authentic. Um, in terms of what you're saying, I think for me, the way it shows up is um, <laughs> when I feel abandoned, um, frustrated, angry, all of the above. Um, some time has to pass, <laughs> usually more time than I'd like, and then something amazing happens that reminds me that I'm not alone. Uh, and it's, like you said, often in the most unexpected ways. Thanks. Yeah, that's, grief is hard, um, especially when it's fresh and, and raw, and especially when, um, yeah, when there hasn't been time to pass. And time does heal wounds in some ways. Um, but it is a long journey. And that's something that I think is important for us to be honest about, too, is that God meets us in our grief, but he never promises that we're not going to go through it. Or that there's going to be a specific answer or outcome that we're going to get to. And that's part of this journey of faith that we're doing, is figuring out where we're going together and where we see and find God in the middle of it. Oh, oh sure. sorry, I thought you were. Sure, Sorry, Kimberly, you don't have to. I'll take it, I'll take it. I love it. Somebody wants me to say something. Um, no, but what I, what I was just thinking about in terms of my own journey is, um, you know, I came from the, 
this end of the pendulum, which was, you know, God is a divine personality who is with us or not with us, who is speaking or not speaking. And I feel like in my deconstruction process now, I've kind of swung to the opposite end of the pendulum for the moment. I don't know what the future is going to look like, but at this moment, it's I, I'm exploring and experimenting and engaging with this idea that um, maybe God is not a divine personality at all. Um, and so therefore, there's no, there's no person to be abandoned by. There's no person to not speak to me or not meet me. Um, the, the sacred aspects of life are always present. And I am developing a confidence in myself to be able to meet life circumstances on its own terms and to be able to respond to whatever circumstances come into my life with, um, with a deep foundational sense of love and joy and peace that is, it is all pervading. Um, and so it's, I, I, I find that to be very comforting. And I've, I've been letting go of this idea of praying to a God to change my circumstances so that I don't have to suffer and just realize that pain is is a part of life but suffering the suffering is optional and to me suffering is like continuing the pain it's like perpetuating the pain by continuing to think negatively about whatever is happening in my life or whatever you know person or circumstance is confronting something in me that i don't like something that is not meeting my expectations yeah you know um Grief is hard, and we have really weird responses to grief, right? Um, there's not this cohesive... First of all, there's not a cohesive picture of God in the Bible anyways. Different authors in the Bible argue amongst themselves about who God is, and that's a tradition that we get to enter into, is that we can have conversations about who God is. Um, but it's interesting in grief especially... Um, Last week, we went through a big scare with my father-in-law, with Ashley's dad, um, who very quickly had some unexpected problems that came up and went into the emergency room and had emergency surgery. Um, and at the time, we thought that it was a, uh, we thought that the most likely scenario was that he had um, developed um, late-stage lung cancer that would not be treatable or would be very hard to treat. And it was one of those things that, that those moments, we're still not entirely out of the woods, but that didn't end up being exactly what was happening. And so they're still looking into that aspect, but um, there's been a lot more peace in our house and, and with Ashley's dad. Um, but um, in those moments, you know, when the the deepest tragedies happen around us, you know, I don't know exactly what I believe about prayer. But when there isn't anything that I can do and I feel far away, and I want to ask those questions that I asked for so long, God, where are you? I still find myself praying deeply in ways I'm not even sure that I entirely believe anymore. I will pray for God to intervene miraculously. Um, I'm not even sure that I believe that, 
but in those deepest moments of grief, that is exactly where I go. Um, God makes space for us to be in these different places and, and to have these cognitive dissonances. And as we see them and learn them, um, you know, we get to find out more about our experience of God. And it opens up who God is. Um, but you're right, being in this place of journey isn't arrived. We're on a pendulum that swings. Um, I find myself back and forth all the time in different areas. Thanks, everybody. I'll make this quick, but uh, talk about Rachel. I mean, she's the reason why I'm here. The first time I ever stepped into this church was to come and see her speak, and then I ended up coming on Sunday and staying, and that was years ago. But, um, you know, so when I heard about her passing, it was like a punch in the gut, as I imagine it is for a lot of people in our community. But then watching people talk about it and process it all day yesterday, it was pretty beautiful to see and healing, and, and there was a lot of, like, peace that came over, you know, it doesn't make sense. And even one of the tweeters goes, hey, God, what gives? We were all praying for her. <laughs> like, seriously, this is how it ended? <laughs> like, she just... <laughs> but out of that, you see the impact that a person has. And then to come in this morning and, and to see about the, the project you're doing, it's like we go forward with whatever time we have left. The work's not done. And she was a lightning bolt in a conversation that needed to happen. And now her time is her time has gone and, and, and we're here and it's, you know, we grab it and we keep going forward. And, um, and that to me is really beautiful. I think it, that ministered to me knowing that the work that she started continues through us and, and is inspiring. So thank you for coming this morning. Thank you for this t space to kind of process. And, um, and I think the hope I find is that like, you're right. Dust to dust, you know, like we have limited time. Let's just keep going. Let's, Let's lead a life of love. Yeah, it's, um, thank you, Nathan. That's helpful. And we, like you said, we, we have no guarantees. We know what we have in this space and the legacy that we get to leave behind and to see the unfolding of this legacy that Rachel has left and watch how many people have been changed by her is just truly amazing. As tragic and heartbreaking as it is, the kind of reach and transformation that she was a part of is a rare and unique opportunity. Um, yeah, and something that we should be amazingly thankful for, no matter how hard we grieve. Yeah. Well, thank you guys so much for being here. I always appreciate it, especially in difficult times and spaces. This is a therapeutic space. I say that as somebody married to a therapist, so I have a lot of therapeutic spaces. Thank you for creating this community to be the place that it is. And uh, please speak with Gaddison if you'd like to connect with him. We'll send information out. Go in peace.